You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And this is the first episode of 2018, so Happy New Year. Yeah, that's right. We are very I said, excited yeah, about this. yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like a combined yeah and that's right. Uh, well, we are obviously very excited to be here okay, and so, very like, excited about clearly our Clearly, we're just today. tripping over ourselves <laughs> as we try to say, that's right. Um, no, it's probably more because we had a sleepless night, not from staying up late, but because our children decided not yeah, to sleep. Yeah, so. that is true. <laughs> Happy New Year to us. Happy New Year. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty lit celebration, I must say. <laughs> well, we thought that the first episode of the new year should be about a very important topic, mental health and the importance of self-care when maintaining your mental health. Yeah, and we thought this would be really appropriate for the first day of the new year because lots of people are making New Year's resolutions. Maybe you are. We have, although we don't really like to say New Year's resolutions. We just like to resolve to make our life better regardless of what point in the year we find ourselves. But anyway, we've been thinking about that a little bit lately and hopefully you are too. And we thought this would be a good time to talk about the importance of mental health, a subject that's not discussed enough. We've talked about it on the show before, even a few episodes ago with Skylar Noel, my brother Skylar. And uh, we wanted to bring on somebody who can talk to us a little bit more about mental health, how to improve it, self-care, things like that. Yeah. So today we are talking to Julia Hogan. She is a licensed professional counselor in the Chicagoland area, and she also works um, as a psychotherapist, a writer, and a speaker. And we found out about her because of her writing. She writes regularly for Verily, which is an online women's magazine that we love. We've featured many of um, Verily's writers and editors on the show before, and we thought that it'd be great to have Julia Hogan on to talk about mental health and self-care. So Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. I definitely highly recommend your articles on Verily. Um, We love Verily, and your contributions are always really great. We'll definitely include a link to those in our show notes after tonight. I wanted to introduce you more, but I'm not the best person to explain what psychotherapy is. So if you could just tell us what you do as a psychotherapist and what kind of services you provide and what kind of clients you see. Yeah, sure. I know that uh, therapy can seem a little bit mysterious because it's not something that's talked a lot about a lot in conversation. So psychotherapy is really just using research-based treatment methods to help people through a variety of things, whether it's mental illness like anxiety, depression, bipolar, emotional difficulties, grief, loss, trauma changes and things like that. And then even just simple life changes, making job transitions, moves, anything that you're kind of experiencing some sort of difficulty with therapy is a really great avenue to talk that through and to use the research that's out there to help help you grow and uh, work through some things. And it can also be really good to just help for working through goals as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that something's wrong in your life. It can just be that you want to work towards something and achieve it. So that's really what I do. I really enjoy my job. I work a lot with young adults and adults. I work with a lot of people who are experiencing anxiety and depression and relationship issues. And really my work is just to meet them where they are and be with them along the journey and help them reach their goals. When someone says that they are a therapist, can we assume that then they also they mean they're a psychotherapist or is there a distinction between those two? Not really. Psychotherapists and therapists are not really regulated terms, so it just means someone who provides psychotherapy. It gets confusing when you get into who's a psychiatrist, who's a psychologist, 
who's a social worker, and then who's a licensed professional counselor. And that all really just has to do with level of education. So whether it's master's or doctoral or medical school. Well, I want to jump off on this point where you said you work with a lot of young people and especially people with anxiety and depression. And we did a podcast probably about six months ago now, maybe maybe not even that long ago. But we talked a lot about how many young people today deal with anxiety. And we, we started talking about this because we found the New York Times article that was, I think it was called United States of Xanax. And um, it was talking about how uh, anxiety is the new depression that everyone used to need. Prozac. Anti- yeah, antidepressants, Prozac. But now, you know, we, we used to be Prozac nation and now we're Xanax nation because now mm-hmm. we just have a generation of people who um, are unable to cope because of anxiety issues. And I don't know how long you've been practicing psychotherapy, but does that jive with your experiences? Do you think that people are more anxious than we used to? Or uh, maybe just anecdotally, does it seem like there are a lot of a, a significant part of the population that deals with, with anxiety now? I Well, I haven't been practicing for decades, so I can't say I know of any, just anecdotally, any trends that I have observed. But I know that anxiety is, I would say, the number one diagnosis that I work with in the practice that I work for. And anxiety can take so many different forms, right? It can just be sort of a general anxiety where there's a lot of worry about different things. It can be really specific, like phobias. Uh, people can get panic attacks. There's all different kinds of, and they all have different sources too. Um, there's really, you know, intense anxiety that can come from trauma, and then there's mild anxiety as well. But I think that is something that I see a lot of people dealing with, and I think, you know, there's lots of different reasons for where anxiety can come from. You know, there's biological, there's genetic, and there's also situational. And I think that there's our world is in a lot of confusion right now, and I think that can also contribute a little bit to the anxiety that a lot of young people feel today. Yeah, we we also talked a couple episodes ago about how it's it's a little bit difficult to be a person in the world today who's sort of tuned into world events because if you turn on the news mm-hmm. or you open up uh, the internet, you're going to see bad headlines everywhere. So it seems like that. Oh my would gosh, be I know. Yeah, I mean, you open up. You know, today North Korea launched another missile and. Uh, now they're maybe they're maybe capable of reaching the U.S. or at least a U.S. territory like Guam, and um, yeah, it's just it's hard to not it's hard to get away from the bad news, I guess. And uh, in my own life, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on social media as a culprit in this, because in my own life, I've struggled with anxiety sometimes, and I've found it helpful to strictly regulate my engagement on social media. You know, be that taking apps off my phone or making sure that I don't don't visit social media during certain hours of the day just because it's it's so constant and you're one exposed to you know bad or anxiety inducing events but two i also think you have this sort of this fear of missing out or fomo uh just because everyone's always posting things and giving the impression that their life is more rosy than yours uh and i th- i just think that in and of itself can be pretty anxiety inducing Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. I was actually just talking about this with someone the other day. And, you know, I, I, I believe that social media is neutral, right? It can be positive or negative, but it definitely has potential to become negative in the way that you use it. And I think exactly in the way you were saying back where you see you see a filtered version of what other people are showing you of their lives. And we tend to compare ourselves to our friends and the people that we follow, right? Cause we're, 
we're relational people, right? We're social beings and we want to know what everyone is up to, but it can really, we can get sucked into this comparison game, right? And there's this quote, I think it's Theodore Roosevelt said it, and he said that comparison is the thief of joy. And that quote just so resonates, I think, with social media and how we use it. Once we start comparing our lives to other people, and especially to a filtered version, like you said, the rosy view, then we start to get robbed of that joy that we have of our own lives. So a lot of times uh, social media definitely comes into play in therapy with anxiety and I'll work with my clients and we'll, we'll come up with a plan to decide when to use social media and, you know, before using it to open up the app mindfully, right, or log in mindfully knowing that once you start to feel those negative feelings seeping in, that's the time to stop using it or stop using it before those kind of start to seep in or if you're not in a good place mentally if you've had a long day and you're stressed don't log in if that's going to be something that's going to drag you down further and I also know like you were talking about with the news and just negative negativity everywhere where it can get really overwhelming or worrisome I think you know even limiting your your exposure to the news is important too and you know only accessing a couple resources or, you know, only reading the news when you're in a mindset where you can be a little bit more resilient or have a, a good perspective because it can be overwhelming at times. And I've definitely heard that from many of my clients. I think this is a great segue to talking about challenges in general to mental health. Um, and we've talked about the news and social media. What other challenges do you see to mental health that, that specifically millennials and maybe the next generation face? If I could, I'd like to start just one positive change that I think has been really good that millennials have to their advantage and future generations have to their advantage. And that is just that the stigma of seeking therapy is lessening slowly but surely. So more people are open to seeking therapy and more people are not afraid to tell someone that they're seeing a therapist. Uh, now more than ever. So that's a really that's positive change that's been happening. Yeah. So, you know, that stigma is still there. And I do hear from clients that they, you know, they won't tell anyone that they're seeing a therapist that they tell people they're just going to the doctor or whatever, yeah. but more and more openness. And I've, I've had clients who are teens who requested to come into therapy or who are young adults and ask to see a therapist. And I think that's such a positive change, you know, being okay with seeking help. Yeah, do you think that sense of a stigma is more an internal perception rather than one that's externally corroborated, that people are just afraid that that other people are going to judge them for having mental health issues mm-hmm. and it's not actually the case? I kind of think it's a combination of, of both. I think maybe as a culture, as a society, we tend to be a little bit more frightened of mental illness because uh, it's a little bit, you know, when, when someone has a broken bone, or um, when someone has a cold, you can see it. You know that they have a cold. It's more tangible. Whereas anxiety or depression and, uh, you know, PTSD and things like that are a little less tangible and I think can seem a little more scary and mysterious. And so I think there's that as a society. But then I think also there is that internal perception. If I go seek help, then I'm saying there's something wrong with me. Or I've had clients who've come into my office and said, you know, like if I come in here, it's like I'm saying I'm crazy or I'm admitting I have a problem, you know, and so we'll talk about, no, you're doing something good for yourself. I'll often use the analogy, you know, if you found out that you had diabetes, you wouldn't 
try to just soldier on and, you know, treat it on your own. You would 100% seek doctor's care and professional advice, right? Or same thing with the broken bone. If you broke your leg, you would not set it on your own. You wouldn't put your own cast on. You wouldn't just hope it would fix itself. You would go and seek help. And I Yeah, that's a great analogy. Yeah. It's the same thing with mental health, right? Like there's no reason why if you're struggling with anxiety, you have to soldier on, on your own and suffer, right? Why not seek the help of someone who's there for you, who knows the research, who can guide you and be a support in the right direction, right? It's like when you explain it like that, it seems like a no brainer. I know I'm a little biased inside from the therapist, but I think, um, you know, that's really that combination of the internal perception and then society is what people are working against when they make that really big decision to, to call and schedule their first appointment. Well, and I think to go back to a point that you just made about people's kind of misunderstanding of what mental health is and maybe a fear of surrounding it because of the diversity of its expressions um, in terms mm-hmm. of mental health illness, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so great that you speak and write and kind of just promote greater awareness and education about mental health because we it's it's such a you know a huge bucket of possible maladies then and we we don't even know how to identify it in ourselves, let alone identify it in someone else. Yeah, I think that's so true. You'll hear a lot of times people will say that they, until they go and seek help with a therapist, they don't know the word to label what they're experiencing. So to to find out that, you know, this feeling that my chest is tightening and I can't breathe is actually a panic attack and it's not me having a heart attack and I'm not going to die or I'm not going to faint. It's my anxiety. It's almost a relief to find that out. And I think you know, hopefully through the writing and the speaking in the workshops that I do is helping to kind of demystify the world of therapy and lower that barrier of entry so that people feel more comfortable calling and making that first appointment and coming in. Okay. So we talked about stigma and news and social media. What other challenges to mental health do millennials face? And, and what are some of the ways we can kind of just go into as well? What are the ways that you recommend that we combat those Um, We talk a lot on vernacular about pursuing human flourishing, and I Mm -hmm. think mental health is such a big part of that, even though, as we've just talked about, we don't always recognize that. So, yeah, tell us a little bit about that, the challenges and the ways to combat those challenges. Yeah, sure. I think two of the big things that I think are challenges millennials and future generations face is the growing sense of isolation. I know that we are more of a global world now, right? And we are connected through social media, but I think there's also this tendency to become more isolated and, you know, we can talk to people online or we can, you know, have Twitter friends and make friends on Facebook that we've never met, but kind of losing those family and friend connections. Uh, as young adults or as millennials, you know, moving to different cities, changing jobs, um, all of those. So those social connections, I think, is a hard part because, again, relationships are so important for our mental health and for flourishing. And when you feel isolated, that's when those you know, negative thinking patterns and depression and anxiety could set in. So there's that. And then I think, you know, we already touched upon it a little bit, but that worry about the future and change because our world is changing and it's very different from what the life for adults, you know, maybe 20, 30, 
years ago. You know, I know I, I have friends whose parents have been in the same job for 40 years, right? And that's not the reality now. We millennials are constantly changing and moving and growing and, the you know, it's cool to be an entrepreneur. It's cool to do startups. And there's that whole corporate structure is changing for a lot of people. So I think with that change, change can be good, but it can also spark some worry about the future anxiety or, you know, feeling a little less stable with where you are. So those are the two challenges that really kind of stand out for me. And so obviously with isolation, really investing in relationships is important. And that's creating strong family connections, that's nurturing friendships, that's fostering healthy relationships and really staying connected to the people in your life so that when you hit the rough patches, you have that source of support there. And then really just with worrying about the future and dealing with change, a lot of energy should be poured into just taking care of yourself and building up resiliency and being flexible and okay with change. And I know that self-care is a term that therapists throw around a lot, but it's not necessarily something used in just common uh, conversation, but really it's just taking care of your emotional and physical and spiritual well-being. So that's going to be making sure you're getting enough sleep, making sure you're eating a balanced diet, that you're exercising, that you are managing stress, that you are setting boundaries in your relationships, that you're doing what's best for you and keeping that growth mindset rather than feeling like you're stuck and trapped in things. I'm curious to hear a little bit more from your practical experience as a counselor dealing with, uh, with patients. You mentioned the social isolation challenge and how that is a, a massive problem today and only becoming more so. And it's, like you, like you pointed out, it's sort of, uh, counterintuitive, perhaps, given that we are more connected than ever digitally. We're also mm-hmm. more disconnected than ever, uh, you know, on a, on a physical level. And I think a big part of that, and you alluded to this, is the the loss of strong families. And I'm wondering, in your work with clients, how how much of a difference do you think that has made? I mean, how much of a difference does it does it make when people are disconnected from their own families, be it uh, because of a broken relationship, perhaps, or just because they don't live in the same place as their family does. I just think that anecdotally for me, it's it's a lot more common today to have people be living on the opposite side of the country from their family. And I, for my own part, my family's scattered across the U.S. None of us live in the same. Well, I, get, I think I guess I have two sisters and my parents who live in the same town, but the rest of us are all scattered. So h- how common mm-hmm. of a story is that? How much does that contribute to some of the problems that that the millennial generation faces? Yeah, I think, you know, like you said, and I was just saying, being a more global world, we're no longer living in, you know, the same house we grew up in or in the same town as our family. I think I don't have the research handy, but I know just from my own experience in my practice that family support and friend support makes a huge difference in just progress and treatment because when you have a family that's not supportive, when you have a family that doubts, you know, the truth of what you're dealing with, when you have no family there or no friends and you're feeling isolated, then you lose that sense of connection, you lose that sense of hope, you lose that sense that there's there are people in your corner who are there to help you through the rough times, right? And then that can 
that can really take a hit on who, how you view yourself. You start to think, well, no one wants to be my friend or no one wants to, you know, is interested in who I am as a person. And then that just reinforces that negative cycle. So family, for sure, can make a huge difference in just resiliency and getting through the tough times. I have a second question uh, also relating to your practical experience, which is I'm wondering how many how many people have you worked with who have had anxiety problems that stem from a, uh, like, I guess a, a desire to be consequential, like a desire for significance. And I, I think this is something that social media feeds too, because you see people posting about their life. You see the sort of zero to hero stories of people who become social media stars when they maybe don't have the pedigree to be a celebrity in another way, but they have a massive audience. And so they get a lot of retweets and a lot of likes and you see people doing things and you look at your own life and think like, what, what am I doing? So I think that anxiety can range from causing, you know, minor sadness about the fact that you wrote a brilliant tweet that didn't get retweeted or, you know, all the way on the other end, like an existential crisis about whether or not what you're doing in your corner of life, you know, as a, as a Starbucks barista or whatever is actually significant and wondering if you're living up to your full potential when you see other people all around you that seem to be doing a lot more than you are. Well, actually, this reminds me yeah. of the Enneagram because um, my sister and I were talking about it the other day. And one of the one of the types – I'm not as familiar with it as she is, but one of the types, um, the, the weakness of it or the, kind of the, the struggle of one of them is the desire for significance. Right. So that's like a whole subset of people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel I, – I definitely have felt that. I'll just – I'll call a spade a spade. I'll be honest about this. I mean, so it's – and uh, Julia, you mentioned com- the Roosevelt quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm-hmm. I think it's really accurate and, and applicable here because when you compare yourself to people around you, you look at people, okay, let me let me sort of match my life experience, my age, my education level. Let me see what people around me are doing. And when you compare yourself to someone who might be doing something that looks more significant, and I'm using square uh, scare quotes here, it's it's kind of mm-hmm. deflating because you look at this and you think, well, I, I should probably be as significant as that person. I should probably be making as much of a difference as that person. And I think um, that it's also exacerbated by this wrong-headed scale that we often use to assess significance, right? Like you can't you can't assess mm-hmm. significance by your social media following. I mean, um, there's this firm called Clout, and they they ostensibly tell you how much of an influ- influencer you are, and they just do that by looking at your social media footprint and how many times you're liked and retweeted and followed. But that's not that's not a real measure of meaning, and I, I fear that our generation has bought that bought into that idea that that is how you measure meaning and that's how you measure significance. And I think, I mean, I'm just theorizing here and spitballing and I'm not a therapist, but I suspect that that feeds a lot of anxiety. Yeah. I think that, you know, I talked earlier about just the world changing and changing at such a fast pace and that that can really hit on that sense of like, where am I? Where's my place? Where do I belong? Right. And I don't know if you guys have uh, heard of the book, The Defining Decade by Meg Jay. She's a no. psychologist. It's I think so I have good. I barely. <laughs> yeah, I probably honestly mentioned it in one of my articles <laughs> because anytime I work with a young adult, I always recommend that book because in there she talks about how now that the world is so different that you don't just graduate from college and start working. You know, some people do do this, but I think... Now that young adulthood is stretched longer, right, that we don't, a lot of people aren't just graduating from college, getting married, having kids and working, like I gave that example before, you know, working at uh, a company for 40 years. And so there's a lot 
more years of what am I doing? Who am I? What's my purpose in life? Where should I go from here? And she has Meg Jay in her book. She has a lot of really good just wisdom from the science that she's worked with because she worked with a lot of college students and young adults and about how all of the struggle that you're doing in your 20s is really creating this foundation for your future. But part of that worry there is because you're struggling, because you're not sure where you're going, because you haven't seen the payoff yet, there's a lot of just discomfort and worry about, am I doing the right thing? And so like you were saying, Zach, of course you look to your friends, of course you look to the people you're connected with on social media. It's kind of a barometer for how you're doing, but you have to recognize that as long as you're doing the thing that's right for you, you have to be comfortable with moving at your own pace. And I think it's one of those things that once you get past that rough patch, (laughs) that part of building the foundation, and you can stand on it and look back, you can see how everything connected together. But when you're in it, it's so hard. And I think that's where the worry and the, you know, looking for significance, especially in social media, because then you feel like people are seeing you and valuing you and recognizing you and giving you affirmation and praise and We all want to feel like we have a place to belong, but it's harder when you're not sure where you're going, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it it totally makes sense. I think you also need to be intentionally countercultural because if you buy into the, I guess, the modern spin of a meaningful life, you're going to feel anxious when you log on to Facebook and Twitter. But if instead you recognize some of these problems, that we have a social isolation problem, that we have a, a relationship deficit then you can look at your life and say, okay, well, you know, as a, you know, fill in the blank as a Starbucks barista or a, uh, you know, sanitation engineer or any other job that we might think of as insignificant, am I cultivating meaningful relationships? You know, how is my relationship with my parents? How's my relationship with my, with my spouse or uh, other loved ones? Uh, what about my children? And I think that's, that's where the real value of life comes in. I mean, we, um, we interviewed Emily Esfahani Smith a couple years ago on this podcast, and we read her book earlier this year. And a lot of a lot of what she identifies as a meaningful life comes down to that: how do you build relationships, and how do you how do you weave the narrative of, of your life in a way that makes sense beyond the here and the now? Yeah, I think it really has to do a lot with identifying your values, what's important to you in life, and is it the authentic relationships. Is it becoming like the most authentic version of yourself or is it, it, you know, living for those kind of ephemeral affirmations that you get from social media? Um, since we are releasing this right around the new year and recording right beforehand, I wanted to end kind of on a practical note and go back to what you were saying about self-care because I know you're writing a book mm-hmm. about self-care. And could yeah. you just give our listeners some ideas of maybe some practical tips or practical steps that they could take, if not for themselves, then maybe to encourage a friend or a loved one who might be struggling um, with mental health right now? Uh, you know, what are some of those steps that they that they could take um, as they approach the new year? Yeah, I think, you know, like you were saying, self-care is just so important to managing stress, and stress is a huge trigger when anyone is dealing with a mental illness, depression, anxiety, and, and other things too. So managing stress is really important, and especially around the holidays and the new year, that can be a little bit hard to do. Um, but just some practical tips really would be taking time to pause during your day just to reflect. I'm a huge fan of practicing gratitude 
And there's been a lot of great, awesome research out there showing that practicing gratitude every day can help improve your mindset and help you be more resilient in the face of stress. So an easy way to practice gratitude is it's so simple. It's literally just sitting down and writing three things that you're grateful for that day. And they don't even have to be super amazing existential things. They can be really simple. I always give the example of I love coffee. But I was I just going to say coffee. coffee. <laughs> yeah. Love it. I love it. I get multiple times a day. Um, but I sip it, right? I'm not a gulper. And so I sip my coffee and it gets cold really quickly. And so I was always running to the microwave and heating it. Or Julia, me whole... too. I, you're speaking my language. <laughs> We are on the same page here. Uh, so, you know, it was always like, do I reheat it? Do I just make a fresh cup? What should I do? And I got this tumbler, this like ceramic metal tumbler thing from Costco of all places. And, you know, whatever the technology is, it keeps my coffee warm for hours or it keeps it hot for hours. And that has been like a total game changer because I can sip my coffee all I want go just as hot and I'm so grateful for it right so it's just like this little thing it's not you know this life-changing thing that I am grateful for that's altered the course of my life but it's just something that's made my day a little bit better and I'm so grateful for it so practicing gratitude is a really great thing to do also just even deep breathing and that's something that has been shown to release stress so it calms your body down gets more oxygen to your brain reduces your blood pressure reduces muscle tension and it's simply just breathing in really slowly through your mouth holding your breath for a couple seconds and then breathing out slowly um, again and that's a really great de-stressor too and then of course exercise but I know during the new year everyone results to start exercising but that has been shown to boost your mood especially if you're dealing with anxiety or depression that's great. Well, thank you so much, Julia, for coming on our show. And thank you for um, yeah, sharing your experience and advice for, for us and our listeners. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. listening to another episode of vernacular podcast if you would like to reach out to us and let us know what you thought of this episode or any of our episodes you can go to vernacularpodcast.com you can email us at zach and sally at vernacularpodcast.com and you can you can find us on a number of other ways uh we'll start with instagram at vernacular pod also twitter at vernacular pod or facebook at facebook.com slash vernacular podcast you can support us on patreon Yes, that's going to be patreon.com slash vernacular, slightly different, so mind mind that one. <laughs> and you can help other listeners find us on iTunes, which is now Apple Podcasts. That's by right. giving us a five-star rating and review if you want to. Yes, and we'll be forever in your debt if you do. Yes, because for some reason, Apple Podcasts allows people to be seen more on Apple Podcasts if you have more reviews. That's right. And you may not know this, but Vernacular is actually a podcast network. And we have another show called Third String that's hosted by yours truly and a couple other people. And if you're interested in sports at all, this is for you. So check out Third String. That's 3RD String. Also in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I think that's it, right? Yeah. Okay. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.
down by your side.